Welcome to today's edition of Beat to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. All right, verse 17. Also, and and by the way, they hated it because they knew it was done with the help of God. Meaning they, they didn't just hate the wall and they didn't just hate Israel in terms of uh, ethnic reasons or nationalistic, national reasons, country. They hated Israel because Israel was abiding by the commandments of who? You got to stay with me on this. Israel was preaching and living by the commandments of who? God. So ultimately, what do people hate? Do they hate walls? Do they hate military power? Do they hate a wealthy, prosperous, free nation? They hate all that stuff. But what do they hate the most of all? What do they hate? They hate God, they hate God and his righteousness. They hate God and his right. And anything that stands up for God and righteousness, they will attack because they're angry. And they were angry at Israel because God did that. And Israel was God's nation, preaching his law, shining his law to the world. They hated that. And they're going to hate the church because we function as the Israel now, preaching the light of the gospel and God's law, which exposes sin and calls men to repentance. They hate that because they hate righteousness. Verse 17, also in those days, the nobles of Judah, this is more of an answer for Emily from before, there was some intertwining uh, uh, scandal going on between the Jewish rulers and the Samaritans who were non-Jews. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah, who were Jewish, were sending many letters to Tobiah, who was a Samaritan, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. So they're going back and forth sharing this information. For many in Judah were under oath, many of the Jews, many in Judah were under oath to him, to to Tobiah. Well, why were they under oath to a Samaritan? Because he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. So through marriage, he was interrelated into the Jewish ruling elite. And then they were in cahoots with him, striking deals. Does this sound like, I mean, this is so sinister. This is nowadays in our corrupt system, we see a lot of this backroom deals and shenanigans to try and fight righteousness and galvanize wealth and influence and power to yourself. It's just as corrupt now as it ever was. Verse 19, moreover, they, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling them what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So they're, 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 Tobiah, these guys are fighting the nation of Israel and all these little um, insiders are running up to Nehemiah and be like, well, look at what good thing Tobiah did here. And look how good Tobiah is here. And like bragging about Tobiah's righteousness when he was clearly a scoundrel. And then what are they doing? They're taken from what Nehemiah said. And what are they doing? Going running off. What does it say? Okay, tell me, what are they doing? Telling what? Telling. Yeah, they're going off and telling telling. Um, Tobiah and the enemies, everything that Nehemiah was saying. So like in, 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 you know, internal spies, spoiling everything, not keeping the trust that was given to them. And I, I, it's just, it's so nasty and nefarious and deceptive. And I, I, I won't harp on it, but I, I just can't, I can't help. Sorry. I can't help it. Okay. Well, uh, and, and we can do it here because we're at discussion and it's application. What, what was one of the biggest problems? Did you guys pay attention during the Trump administration? 
that, they could, that even he couldn't get a hold of in his administration, in the inner circles of the cabinet. Do you remember? You don't remember the word leaks, leaking, leaks, all the leaks that were happening? Constantly, there would be a phone call with like the Australian prime minister <coughs> would get leaked or a private meeting with senators would get leaked. Constant people on the internal leaking out all this stuff, warring against the administration. The only reason I'm bringing that up is because it's a very illustrative contemporary example of the goings-on of the evil one and his workings is that's what he does is betrayal and lying and exposure and deception. And we see it. It's the same thing in the 21st century as you saw going on in the 5th century BC. Okay, so amen. That is the text. What a great passage. And let's answer some questions. Just because I took long, I like to read through the passage with you narratively because it uh, makes it come more alive and, and give some relevancy to it. So let's answer some of these questions. Um, on page 117, we're going to skip number one. What financial crisis befell the laborers in Jerusalem? What caused it? How did they become vulnerable to such a crisis? We already talked about what they were going through financially. How did God expect the nobles to respond to the needs of their brethren? And why do you think the Jewish leaders did not follow God's law? So I'll read it again. What did God expect the nobles to do when they saw a need? And why did they not do it? So what was expected that the nobles should do when they saw a need? Be charitable. Be charitable. Right. Um, and it, when it was paid back, if it could get paid back, accept it. But otherwise, don't worry about it. Now, in the history of the Old Testament Israel, it's very interesting. Every seven years, when you were an indentured servant or you lost your property, if something happened or there was famine or you were poor and you were working for somebody kind of in the situation like we're talking about here, after every seven years, what would happen with the property? It would have to get put back to the appropriate people and families. And then every seven sevens, seven times seven is 49, and after those seven sevens on the 50th year, what year was that called? Jubilee. Year of Jubilee. And that's where you get that verse, actually, um, in Leviticus that's inscribed on the Liberty Bell. Uh, let, I'm paraphrasing it. It's on the, let, let freedom, uh, what's on the Liberty Bell? Let liberty be declared throughout the land or something like that. Or let freedom be declared throughout the land. It's on the Liberty Bell. They got it from Leviticus. And that's from the year of Jubilee. And at that point... All debt would be canceled, and literally everything had to go back to the original ownership of the families because the property mattered in Old Testament Israel. That, that was a land gift that God gave to his covenant people by tribe, by 12 tribes. And then they had distinct families, and, and it had to stay with those. And God did not want any of his people becoming poor with no property and no place to live that they could call their own. So does property matter to God? Yes, property ownership and property rights an important thing. Very much so. Very much so. That's where when you when you hear these people talk about um, talk about oh capitalism is is not in the Bible or it's not biblical or that socialism is an option. I was referenced this earlier. I'll say it now. That's a really grievous, uh, bad and grievous interpretation of the Bible. It's very erroneous. Nothing in here is teaching socialism. And communism, which is the confiscation of everybody's property and a tiny few hold it and everybody's poor because nobody owns anything, we all just share. 
Let me ask you this. Was there ownership in this passage? There was ownership. Who, who has some, a lot of the ownership? The wealthy, right? And the idea was that others also should be able to own. And if they lost their ownership, that should be what? What should be, if they lose it, eventually it should be what? Given back. back. Yes. Yes. Ownership and property rights was very important. It's a part of a Christian worldview and Christian ethics. So capitalism is not a preferential economic model. It's a biblical model because uh, we are, we're, we're commanded to have stewardship over the earth and should, should aspire to ownership. And God wanted that for his people. And it was a very sacred thing. That's why we talk about the sanctity of property or the sanctity of life or the sanctity of marriage or the sanctity of worship or the sanctity of uh, truthfulness. Where are all these sanctities, by the way, quickly and easily embodied in a very simple 10-step framework written into stone? <laughs> Where? <laughs> Right? The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. That governs all of society. That protects the sanctity of these things. Okay, you get the point. So why did they not follow God's law? That's simple. I'm either really boring or the questions are easy or we're dazed out. I mean, it's not that late. I'm not going to go that long. Why, why did they not follow God's law? They hated God. They hated God, but just simplify it. Rank what? Money. Yeah, money, selfishness. Same thing, hoarding, hoarding, taking it for themselves and not, not one. Now, this leads to my question. I put a little asterisk here. And I, I said it before, but now let's really answer that question. Is wealth bad? Is that what it's saying? No, it's not saying wealth is bad. This is not a repudiation of property ownership, nor is it an axe either. That would be a bad, as I said, bad Bible interpretation. What is the problem? The wealth? No. If it's not the wealth, what is the problem? Man is sinful, but particularly for these nobles. Is the wealth the problem? No. It's idolatry. It's their heart attitude. It's their attitude towards the wealth. It's what they do with their wealth. Go. Get a career. Aspire to advance in your career and to do well. It's not wrong to accrue wealth. What are you doing with the wealth when you get it? Are you, and, and God has blessed the world in common grace by providing wealth because when you have wealth, like someone like Nehemiah, what can you do with your wealth? Bless others. Bless others and share. And he could have 150 people at his table out of his own accounts and, and feed people and, and show charity. So it's not wealth that's bad. It's the attitude as wealth. Now, I will warn you what the New Testament warns, which we see in our culture, is that wealth can be very deceptive. So you need the spirit of God to manage your wealth well because the love of money, it says, I think in 2 Timothy, is the root of all kinds of what? Evil. Evil. Right, very deceptive. And Jesus even says, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. <coughs> I'll say it slower. It's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's when the disciples, that's that famous verse. If that's the case, it's impossible for anybody to be saved. And God says, no, with, with God, Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. So he says, no, a wealthy person can be saved, but there is a luster and an attractiveness and a lust towards wealth that's extremely deceptive. So as wealthy Americans, we have to manage it well and see how is the Lord calling me to sacrifice, to give to my church, maybe to get involved with adopting a kid like in World Vision or Compassion International. I'm not endorsing particular unique orders. I'm just giving you examples. Voice of the Martyrs helps out with persecuted Christians. Samaritan's Purse is gospel-centered uh, philanthropic giving. Our church is involved with both those organizations. 
So there's ways that you should prayerfully consider how should the Lord want me to use my wealth. Accruing wealth is not bad, but what are you doing with it? It was their heart attitude. So don't fall into this weird deception. We have to be very, very defensive of property ownership and, and wealth creation and prosperity. That's good. But then what do you do with it? That's the issue. Um, good. All right. Let's go to number three. Somebody read that instead of me talking. Who's got number three? Anybody? Yeah. What tactics did Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the other enemies employ to stop the work? How did Nehemiah respond to each attack against him? So what tactics did these guys and the other enemies employ to stop the work, and how did he respond? So just name some stuff you noticed from the text as we read it. Tactics they used. Lying. Lying. Intimidation. Intimidation was big. Distraction. Distraction. Attempted what? Murder. Murder. Yep. Gossip. Gossip. Big time. I mean, that, that's what we see with the church now. You know, if you're an, if you're an unvaccinated evangelical, <laughs> if you're an unvaccinated evangelical who's conservative, you're a what? Yeah, you're a scum. You're a bigot. You're a misogynist. You're a, it's, it's constant gossip and slander and accusations. You're, you're uh, disturbing society. You're, you know, and, and that's the way it's always been. What else? They were persistent, like they kept coming at him. Yeah, they kept coming at him. They did not stop. <laughs> Best Randy says it all the time. The enemy is so good at coordinating its forces, getting them all on the same page, and attacking us relentlessly. Meanwhile, we're all having arguments over... Things that are important, but why, why we're divided and not of one mind on them makes no sense. They, they know how to go rank and file, talking points, attack the church. And we're squabbling over because we can't figure out how to handle Me Too or race or, or, or how to, how to uh, deal with church unity or how to, how to a biblical view of church leadership, things like that, the role of women in the church. We have these inner, inner squabbles that we should be in one mind together and we're not. And meanwhile, man, they are like, they will walk straight in line and be relentless. Um, also, well, Google's listening. <laughs> if you notice in verse 10, I referenced it when I was talking to Eric. There was a deceptive concern and a deceptive piety. Like, oh, I'm, I'm that, that one false prophet saying, come into the temple. There's this fake morality and fake pretense of being um, religious. Um, and, and you see that from the culture often. There's this, you know, so, so it's Christians who commit the hate crimes. Because if, if uh, it's you, it's, it's, Preaching against something like homosexuality, that's a hate crime because we lack compassion. Because, and they're the self-righteous ones who are way more loving. Like, you see how they do that? They put that spin on it. And there's this posture from the enemy that he is righteous and we are hateful, which is exactly what these guys were doing. Um, 
So how did Nehemiah respond? What's that? I'm not going to go and hide in the temple. Right, so he responded with courage, prayer, prayer pushback leadership. Leader, what's that? Pushback leadership. Pushback leadership, yeah, how else? Simply denying the facts that they stated that were false. Very yeah, I, I, I noticed that too, Ben. Uh, he refuted with sound reason. He didn't lash out, but he gave a, a, a simple reason to arguments. And he's like, this stuff you guys are saying is not true. Invent it out of your own head. I'm going to press on and keep going. Um, he stood there in the integrity of his own character and mind before God. He was not intimidated. He stayed the course. He was committed to God's work. He had reverence for God. He did not go in the temple and desecrate it out of his own desire for preserving himself. Now, let me ask you this question. Based on what we read here, and based on what we know of biblical history, what is the enemy's, Satan, his number one ultimate tactic? He is a liar, yes. Uh, but it's, he's referenced this way, yes, who, who said that? That's a correct answer. Yeah, right on, Frank. He's a liar, the father of lies. But it's a particular vein of lying, and it's a term to describe him in Revelation. And it's what he did to Eve after he lied to her. Yes. Yeah, that's it, Kim. He, like, he twisted the word of God. Yeah, he's the accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren, it says. I think it's in Revelation. The accuser of the brethren. He's, listen, slander. That is his final poison dart of choice. And a slander is a false accusation. Watch, pay attention. In the media, when you have, especially a Christian, but anybody who's conservative, that guy Glenn Youngkin that just got elected in uh, Virginia, Republican, okay? Uh, Rand, Pastor Randy said he might have thought he heard that he was a Christian. I don't know. Um, but this guy's getting excoriated. He's being, every, anybody who voted for him and he himself is being called a white racist who it would dog whistle to get all the white racists to vote for him. That's how he got elected. By the way, his running mate, I just posted this on social media today. His running mate was who? Winsome Sears, who's what? Black. Yeah, she's black. She, she's uh, a Jamaican heritage, but she's an American. She's black. And a woman, first ever elected in the state of Virginia by Republicans. And the attorney general is what? Latino. He's Hispanic. It's just like, this is insane. But the, what, pay attention. Or, or Christian leaders. Or in your own life, slander, false accusations. Let me show you from the Bible. Do you know the story of Naboth's vineyard? It's so disturbing. I went over it finally with my kids just a couple weeks ago. It was in the end of First Kings. Ahab, I think it's Ahab, was mad because he wanted the little vineyard. Stealing people's property. Doesn't that sound like today? And today, stealing property is under the guise of sharing progressivism, socialism, and communism. But that's all it is, is stealing people's property because they want it. The elite want it. So Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. So he's mad and he's doing cranky. And Jezebel, wicked woman, it's like, stop being so cranky. You're the king. You should get his vineyard if you want it. And uh, she's like, I'll get it for you. And so what's her tactic? She goes and she goes to the elders in the city where Naboth lived and said, you go get a couple scoundrels from off the streets. Bring Naboth before 
the elders and before the whole city publicly and have them accuse him of profaning God, blaspheming God, and sinning against God's law, and then stone him. And what did they do? They went to the elders, found some scoundrels, rogues, brought him in. Oh, yeah, he's blasphemed God. Town gets an uprising. They're all upset. Stone him to death. Ahab gets his vineyard. That's an, is that sick? Mm. It's such a sad story. You know, and Jezebel gets it, by the way. I think she falls out of a window. Mm. And the prophet's like, a dog will lick up your blood. Mm-hmm. And she falls out of a window and the dog's going like, it's, 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 it's nasty. But I read it to the kids and we were looking at it. I said, grabbing scoundrels off the street, dragging them in front of a righteous man in court before all the elites and accusing him falsely to the point of murder. What does that sound like? Yeah, you guys can say it. Even if it's a simple answer, say it and blurt it out. Yeah, that's Jesus. It's the same thing. They couldn't get him. He was a righteous man. But they hated him so much because they hated his righteousness. They finally got to the last, after Judas, they paid off Judas. And what they do? In the middle of the night after they arrest him, they brought him in. And what they bring in? Liars from the street. Accuse him of this. Accuse him of that. He said this. Christ was silent before his uh, shearers. It says the lamb was silent, made no response. And they falsely slandered him. And then they put him to death. They were doing the same thing, I believe, in the book of Acts, if you remember now, uh, I think at some point to Paul. You know, it's always, my point is, that's what Satan does. Slander, slander, slander until he kills the people of God because he wants them silent. And we, now, if you're really in sin, you need to repent. But we can have confidence that A, we're forgiven. And when we're walking like Nehemiah in the integrity of our conscience before the Lord, you don't have to listen to that slander. And you can resist that. Um, did your hand go up? Yeah. Was it, is that, uh, would you say that would be parallel to Trump's impeachment? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and I didn't, I, didn't mean, I, don't want, I didn't intend to go down that road. You see, yes, great example. But there's slander all the time, political leaders and Christian leaders. And absolutely, you know, that's a fine illustration. But that is the tactic that Satan uses. Um, so... Real quick, some examples of leadership from Nehemiah, and we'll close it out. Um, yeah, this was, this, I like this question a lot. N- number four on page 118. In what ways did Nehemiah demonstrate the qualities of a strong, godly leader in this passage? What leaders have you known who were like him? So, I mean, we can, we can leave off that second question. We can name a lot of leaders we know. Um, hopefully our pastors exemplify that. Hopefully we've seen it in a dad or a brother or a, um, or even for women, you've seen a lot of these characteristics in women that have been leaders in your life. But what qualities of strong, godly leader do we see in Nehemiah? And we'll close with that. I have I actually found 17, but let's see what you guys throw out there. <laughs> no, I don't mean beat them. I'm just saying. I mean, you might say a lot of the ones that I said. I'm just scribbling as I'm reading. So what, just say something. What godly characteristics do you see? And try and be specific, not like leadership. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> what? selfless. Okay, yes. Personal sacrifice. You, you have to be willing to sacrifice for the people that you're leading. And when you're, and this for men and women, when you're a mom one day, Lord willing, if you're a mom, or if you're never a mom, but you disciple people in the church, you have to be willing to sacrifice for these people that you're giving yourself for. That's 
Huge. That's selflessness. What else? Perseverance. Yeah, that was big. Perseverance. Um, I'm scanning mine quickly to see where they match up. Yeah. Uh, Nehemiah had fearlessness in his perseverance. He had a single focus on his work, on his job, on his ministry. Um, that's very important. Led by example. Yeah, led by example. So he lived a purposefully righteous life. Nothing fantastic here about Nehemiah doing any miracles. He loved God's word, and it says that he... We read it. I forget now where the verse reference was. But he feared God, correct? Oh, and he rebuked the elders. He goes, in the fear of the Lord, you need to obey God's commandments and stop exacting interest. He invoked the fear of the Lord. You see, all through Nehemiah, he's afraid of who? He's only one he's afraid of. Who's he afraid of? He is relentlessly afraid of God. And we need to insert that back into our faith. And I'm not talking about like the stuff that you like read in a cereal box when you were little on a Christian cereal box. I don't know what that is. But it's like... <laughs> Fear means reverence. Okay, I got news here. Fear means fear. He, you know why he could stand up to Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all those guys? Because he was not afraid of them because he was afraid of someone a lot bigger that he was going to give account to. Mm-hmm. And he wanted a clear conscience before God saying, I have integrity. You've seen what I've done for these people. Keep your grace resting on me. Help me to persevere. But I know the one who's ruling. And I know the one I'm going to answer to. Fear of God brings about obedience and sanctification and holiness. Absolutely. Go ahead. Um, kind of goes along with what you were saying, but um, he demonstrated that God is at the forefront of his mind by constantly praying. Amen, Andrew. It prayer is all permeates this. People ask me, how do I, you know, uh, light up my faith more, my walk with the Lord and, and, and improve in it, or how do I defeat sin? I don't have any tricks up my sleeves. I'll give you the same two answers I constantly tell people and I tell myself. Read your Bible and what? Pray. And like Jacob wrestled God until he got a blessing. I'm not going to let go until you give me a blessing. When he wrestled God in Genesis. Don't get up from prayer until you've gotten the blessing you want. And, and, and if you're spent, go back again the next day or go back later. Just stay there until that sin is over with. Until you've got victory. That is relentless perseverance, and it's as simple as prayer. We, we, we spend so much time on all this assortment of magical tricks, and yet all we need to do is what? Pray and seek the Lord. And that includes fasting. Fast. Did, you go ahead, Jeff. Go. Um, I have two. Yeah. One you already said. He's normal. Um, yeah. he's, he's a guy. Normal. He wasn't calling fire out of heaven. He was just living righteously, fearing the Lord, and walking above approach. Uh, number two, uh, his intuition. Like, no one had to tell him what to do. He just, in the face of intimidation or fear, or I like when he went out night at night to spy yeah. out the gates. Like, no one had to tell him what to do. He was just being a man. Being and a man, just, yep. You know, walking with, in the fear of the Lord, praying, just, just yeah. Yeah, and you could tell that he knew the scriptures. That's how he's able to rebuke their sin. That's how he had good, in, we say intuition, but I, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that the guy was bleeding Bible, he knew his scriptures, he knew the commission that was given to him, and he was faithful with it. And so it ultimately wasn't a carnal intuition. I know you weren't saying that. It was a spirit-led, 
intuition on his conscience that God was informing him what was the right next thing to do. Um, good. Any others you want to throw out there? Slow to speak. Slow to speak. I love that. Uh, number two, I put that thoughtful deliberation. So I'm going to put two in there for you. Leadership qualities you see. He had righteous anger. Look, he was upset that they were in sin. And, and we're, we're such a coddled society. When you confess sin or you're struggling with sin, don't, or you're in sin, don't be surprised when people who love you exhibit righteous indignation over the sin that you're in. Correct? I mean, Nehemiah was upset. Now, he didn't lash out because what did he do? Thoughtful deliberation. He stopped. He's like, all right, I can clean these guys' clocks. And I love when he rebukes them and they're all like this. <laughs> he's like, I got the ammunition. And he's going to use it. He did use it, but he stopped. He thought. He was a sober man. He was deliberate. He was strategic. And then he dropped the hammer. That's leadership. That's leadership. Rebuked. Knowing and holding to the truth, he expected repentance. Set an example we said, charity and generosity. His confidence was from God because his confidence was in God's word and he had faith to believe that obedience in obeying God's word yields assurance. He had confidence and obedience to God. He had a clear conscience. So that in verse 19. Um, fearlessness. He called out lies. Faithfulness. He set the example. I think you guys said a lot of these. And the last one I put, overall, he had a fear of God. And that was in, I put the uh, verse 11. Yeah. He, and, and when he doesn't go into the temple, you see that fear of God. He's like, no, most overall, I fear the Lord and I'm going to hold his commands. I'm not going to violate what God has commanded me to do and what God has prescribed for me to do. Um, and that's really important. Good. I hope that you were impressed with the Lord. I hope that you were motivated by a very simple story to stand your ground and to uh, stay in the fight for, for your own sake, in your own walk, and for the sake of your church and the people around you. Good. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the uh, awesome example that you brought about for us in Nehemiah, a man who was just a regular guy like us, who was relentless in knowing the scriptures, being devoted to it, uh, using his gifts to serve the community of faith, to be a witness to the nations around him. I think it's so impressive that in, in the midst of all these enemy nations, he was having foreign officials come and eat with him at dinner, and he was sharing it. Um, and somebody referenced it earlier. It was the same thing that Paul did when Paul served the Corinthian church. He didn't charge them because he wanted them to know that he was serving with a sacrificial heart of love and selflessness. Uh, help us to aspire to these type of characteristics where we're imitating God. Nehemiah did not lose his temper. He was compassionate, but he was principled. And he was a man of prayer and a man of the scriptures. And he feared the only one and the only thing to be feared overall, that was God himself. And that bled out into his life and allowed him to make uh, decisive movements and to... Uh, uh, inspire others in obedience, call out sin, lead the people of God, advance kingdom work. And he was able to repel opposition because his first love and his first devotion was set on Christ. We're thankful for this. Help us to do likewise and encourage us, Lord. Um, I pray that people are blessed by this study and inspired not by motivational speaking, not at all, but by the word of God and the testimony of faithful men and women who are standing for Christ. We love you and we thank you for this time. And we pray. Amen. Amen.
Amen. All right, guys, good. Thank you. We'll see you. We'll pick up Nehemiah in January. December's